Well, I'd like to begin by inviting you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter five, to be exact. We're gonna be looking at verses 13, starting in 13, and going all the way through to verse 48 this morning. That's where we're headed. And uh, yeah, a bit of a bigger chunk, uh, but I'm excited to dive into it with you all. And as, as you're turning there in your Bibles, I'll take this opportunity to thank Pastor Jeff for inviting me to come. Guy's camping this weekend with a bunch of others, I understand. Uh, next time I'm gonna invite him to invite me camping. But no, very, very thankful to be here with all of you this morning. My wife, Jorianne, is here. And actually, there's three of us total because she happens to be carrying our, our first child, a little, a little boy. So we're very excited for hopefully November 17th, somewhere in there, for that time to come. Thankful to share that, our excitement with you guys this morning. But especially thankful for a chance to be here and to open up God's word with you. So let's get to it then. As I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, 13 all the way to 48. And perhaps this text will be somewhat familiar to you. For those of you especially who've been following Jesus longer than others, you've studied Jesus' words, his teachings, and this comes straight from his famous Sermon on the Mount. And it's a big portion of that sermon that we're going to be looking at. And it was a few summers back now at our church, at, at Sunset Bible Church, where Jory and I attend, uh, we did a, a fun summer series on the Ten Commandments. Anybody want to guess how long the series was for? The, how many sermons? It was, uh, it was a really fun one. It was a, a fantastic series, not because we focused in on, on ten rules and dissected ten rules, but because our focus was on discovering God's heart and his original purpose in giving those rules in the first place. And the reason I bring that up is because in that series on the Ten Commandments, exploring God's law and his heart, we kept coming back to this passage in Matthew 5 that we find ourselves in this morning. And the reason we did that is because in this passage, not just once or, or twice, but multiple times, we find insight into Jesus and his relationship with the Old Testament law. And as it turns out, the law gives us incredible insight into the heart of God. And so we see Jesus here talk a lot about how he relates with the law of old. And as Bible readers, hopefully as lifelong students of the Bible, we should be concerned with how the New Testament relates with the Old Testament and how the Old Testament relates with the New Testament, how God's story of redemption was not just random or haphazardly thrown together, but that it was strategic and carefully orchestrated through history, and that his story of redemption from beginning to end is, is what is recorded in this book. And, and so whenever we're reading this book, we should, no matter what text we're in, take a step back and ask, where are we in that broader story of God's redemption? When we're reading a text, we can ask that question. And so this morning we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew. After years of silence, the Messiah has now come. And his name is Jesus. And he begins his earthly ministry. 
And as he begins his ministry, wouldn't you know it, he begins to talk about the law of old. And so as Bible readers, some questions should come to our minds. How is Jesus, how is the Messiah, the promised one who would come, how's he going to relate with the law of old? What's his relationship going to be like with it? How's he going to handle it? Has he, has he come to do away with the law, to get rid of it? Has he come to change it? Has he maybe come to, to raise even the standard of the law? Or has he come to reveal God's heart and his original purpose behind the law in the first place? We're going to see in our text a pattern. And this pattern is Jesus' way of communicating that the law had become misunderstood and misapplied by his people over time. And we're going to learn that the, the law has great purpose and importance because it reminds us that our righteousness, human righteousness, simply isn't enough. We might like to think that we're pretty good. We think, oh, I'm not all that bad. And we look at our neighbor and we say, I'm definitely not that bad. So I must not be all that bad after all. I'm, I'm pretty good. But folks, the standard for good is not how well you measure up to your neighbor. The standard for good is how you measure up to a perfect and holy God. And the truth is that none of us do. None of us come even close. Human righteousness simply isn't enough. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Sound good? You with me? All right. I'm going to pray and ask for God's help during this time, and then we'll read the text together. But first, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we take the time now to pause before we enter into your word and come to you. And we want to thank you for this opportunity to explore your word. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it. You show us what you are like. You show us what we are like in light of who you are. And that is our prayer this morning, that you would do just that, that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. I ask humbly that you would be with me as I speak and that my words would be your words and that you would open each of our hearts up to hear from you this morning. Speak to us. Change us, we pray. Be with us during this time. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 5. Like I said, we're going to start in verse 13 here, and then we're going to go all the way through, all the way up to 48. And it's going to take a little time to get through it, so bear with us. But uh, we're not going to rush. Let's take the time, and let's hear the words of Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry will, will be, uh, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, 
Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may, may, may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, deep breath. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Plenty to dissect. And uh, we could spend a lot of time doing that. We could divide this section into several sermons. Uh, but there's an underlying pattern in this text that ties it all together, and that's why we're going to take off such a big chunk together. Our section begins with this mention of salt and light. Verse 13, Jesus is addressing his followers here. He says, you, his followers, are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. What is the means through which our saltiness flavors and our light shines? Well, it's not by staying inside and locking the door. Jesus says that a light is not intended to be hidden under a basket. But verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see. See what? Your good works. It is visible, visible Christian conduct that enables us to be Jesus' salt and light. How a follower of Jesus conducts himself, how he lives his life in the presence of others has everything to do with being salt and light. And for this original audience, for these Jewish ears listening to Jesus, what was the guidebook for how they ought to conduct themselves in the presence of others? What was it for them that taught them the standard for which they should live by? What was it for them that told them what was a good act from what was a bad act. It was the Mosaic law, the law. For these Jews, the law was the total guide to all aspects of life, religious, ethical, moral, even social. Even your social life was governed by the law. It represented a way of doing life. It was massively important in their culture. So imagine that you are a Jewish follower of Jesus. You've been following him around. You've been listening to him speak. You're listening to him speak these words specifically, calling you to be the salt and the, and the light of the earth, shining your light before others so they might see your good works. And immediately as a Jew, your mind is probably going directly to the law, right? So you're thinking, okay, Jesus, of course, you're asking me to live my life according to the law. I will continue to recite the Shema every morning and evening. I will 
give my extras to the poor. I will rest on the Sabbath. I'll give my first fruits to the Lord, etc., etc. Notice that all your focus is on the outward actions, on performing the good works that Jesus is asking you to do. But Jesus is about to offer a corrective to this way of thinking. Now, at this point, Jesus is just beginning his ministry and already opponents are rising against him. And there are those who have already deemed him to be a false prophet who has come to do away with the law, to abolish the law. And Jesus is about to address them in verse 17 here. They believe that his intention was to get rid of the law completely, to abolish it is the word that we find here in the text. And if you've read the other gospel accounts, or if you're familiar uh, later on in Matthew, you know that the religious leaders repeatedly come at Jesus and try to trap him into making some kind of statement or to do something that was anti-law. If they could just get him to denounce Moses or to denounce the law in some way, then they could trap him. They had him and they could make him out to be a blasphemous lawbreaker and then they could publicly shame him and bring him down. You see the political motivation for them because they were beginning to lose their sway over the people, these religious leaders. Their authority was waning with the people. Jesus was beginning to gain popularity. And so their questioning of him in regards to the law was very politically motivated to bring him down. Not so different than our politics and our political system today. You'll hear a reporter go up to a politician and ask them a question. They no longer ask the question in a open-minded and and very genuine way that is a fair question. The question is framed in such a way that, that it's designed to trap that politician into saying something that's going to hurt their reputation and therefore bring them down. And those are the same types of questions that followed Jesus around, and all of them had to do with his relationship with the law. And so this question follows him around, but unlike the politicians of our day who answer these questions with cloudy and vague statements that don't really say much of anything, Jesus confronts this questioning head on. He does so, especially here in this instance in verse 17. He says, do not think. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He repeats himself. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this is a profound statement that Jesus makes. Jesus here points to the prophetic nature of the law, the law's forward pointing to a Messiah who would come, and he's saying, I am that Messiah, which the law is pointing forward to. I have not come to abolish the law. I am here to fulfill it. I fulfill the law. And we could spend a lot of time talking about all the different ways that Jesus fulfills the law. And it'd be a fascinating discussion, but it's beyond our purpose this morning. We have to move on because Jesus moves on too. Verse 18, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest pen mark on the law will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them 
will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus leaves no room here for doubt in how he views the law. He regards the law with great importance. And there is no room for relaxing it. You see, the law was originally given to an unholy people so that they could relate to a holy God. And it was a way for them to relate, but a temporary way. So you had a holy God and an unholy people, and God gives them law as a temporary way of relating to him. But again, it was not intended to be forever because he promised a Messiah who would come, one who would make right what Adam and Eve had made wrong, who would finally and completely bridge the gap between an unholy people and a holy God. And Jesus' arrival on the scene as the Messiah marks the beginning to the end of that temporary way. But even though the law was temporary, Jesus' stance is clear here that the law is far from forgotten. In his kingdom, he says, there is distinction between those who treasure God's commandments and those who do not. So again, put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish listener, the original audience here. You're, you've been following Jesus around. You're hearing Jesus talk about shining your light before others, the importance of obeying the law, and you're shaking your head up and down, being like, I've heard this before. No problem. I've got this. I'm a law follower. I'm going to be one of those that's called great in Jesus' kingdom. But then Jesus drops this on you in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And all of a sudden, you've just gone from potentially being called great in Jesus' kingdom to not even making it in the front door. Because who could possibly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, these are the guys when it came to the law. These guys dedicated their entire lives. They made it their life mission to studying, dissecting, and following, obeying the law. How can I possibly exceed their righteousness? Jesus doesn't even say that. My righteousness just needs to be on par with their righteousness. He says that my righteousness must exceed their righteousness. And thus he has set an seemingly impossible standard for me to even walk in the front door of his kingdom. What is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is qualifying what righteousness is. What is it that makes one righteous? What is it? that makes one righteous? What is the standard on which righteousness is based? You see, for the Pharisees and scribes who Jesus talks about here, their righteousness, quote unquote, was self-proclaimed, self-identified righteousness based on their strict adherence to the law. You may have heard the terms works righteousness before. It's a similar ideology to that of the scribes and Pharisees. And it's the idea that your righteousness is based on how well you follow some sort of moral code or rules and guidelines. As long as you follow those, then you can call yourself righteous by your works, by your outward actions. 
how well you follow some kind of code. And in such cases, the confidence of your faith is laid completely on human effort and human ability. And Jesus says that this type of righteousness, human self-made righteousness, simply isn't enough. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus alludes to a different standard by which our righteousness is truly measured. This standard has not, and to this day, has not changed. But the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, the tradition of God's people over time, had made it so that following the law had become the means of salvation. That this outward action was how you were to be saved. And so you see, over time, this tradition had made it so that God's heart and his original intention and his purpose for the law had become lost. The intended result of relational dependence on God was replaced with self-reliance. The intended result of humble recognition of sinfulness replaced with self-praise. And the intended result of a longing for a Messiah knowing that you need a savior replaced with self-contentedness. There are 613 commandments found in the Pentateuch. And the Pharisees and scribes had measured righteousness to how well you followed these 613 commandments to the T. And in the rest of this passage, we're going to see Jesus bring up some of those 613 commandments. And He's going to share specific examples where God's original intention of the law, where his heart had become lost, and how much broader its understanding and its application really should be. So we heard him broaden a prohibition of murder to include anger, adultery to include lust, oaths to faithlessness. And on topics of divorce, retaliation, and involving enemies, he reiterated God's loving relational nature as primary. You see, Jesus actually taught a radical obedience, not to the letter of the law, but to God's heart behind the law, requiring a complete obedience of the whole self, an obedience that involves a pure heart which overflows into righteous action. The Pharisees and the scribes, they might have been able to quote entire portions of scripture word for word without error. They knew the text well enough to tell you how many words, how many letters even, were in a particular part of scripture. But they missed the purpose and the meaning of what was written down. This is why Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never be saved. Because adherence to the law is not the means to which you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Obeying God's commands is not how you get in. If this were so, not one of us would get in. Not one of us. We would all be doomed. And when Jesus drops this shocking statement on these listeners, and it definitely would have been shocking, 
that unless your righteousness exceeds that of these guys who you think are so righteous, you're not even gonna get in the front door. When he dropped that on them, I like to think that their reaction was probably similar to that that the disciples had to a similarly shocking statement that Jesus makes later on in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 19. And it's an encounter that Jesus has with a rich young ruler, a rich young man who comes to Jesus and he asks the question that every single one of us asks deep in our heart. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we learn in this conversation where Jesus goes back and forth with this man, that this man believed that he followed God's law to a T, that he performed all of God's commandments well. And evidently the disciples believe so too. This guy was viewed as a righteous man. But their conversation ends with this man walking away and returning to his riches rather than following Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, it is easier for a camel, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the text says that the disciples were greatly astonished. They were greatly astonished. And they asked, who then can be saved? If this man can't be saved, who then can be saved? And if we believe that our entrance into heaven is based on how well we follow God's commands, then we should ask the same question. Who then can be saved? Because it's impossible for us to perfectly follow God's commands. You know this well from experience, and this is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples in that moment. He says, with man, this is impossible. What a hopeless statement. With man, it is impossible to be saved. He tells the disciples it is impossible for them to be saved. But that's not all he said, is it? He said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, with God, all things are possible. And there he stood, God himself, in human flesh, talking with lost sinners and telling them, yeah, it is impossible for you to be saved. But here I am, making it possible for you to be saved. He was on the road possible, the only road that could possibly make it possible for man to be saved, he was on the road to the cross. Because the standard for righteousness has not changed. The standard has and always will be a perfect and holy God. And by this standard, it is clear, no one is righteous. No, not one. So hopeless it is for man. But with God, there is hope. And there is hope for all, for each one of us. For he has made a way. He has already made the impossible possible. He has made a way for us sinners to be justified before a holy God. 
the righteousness required to enter the kingdom of heaven does not just exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It exceeds that that any human can possibly muster. It cannot be attained. Such righteousness cannot be attained. It can only be given. And Jesus, in his perfect life of obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of death, yes, death on the cross, he is the authoritative source Jesus is the source of the righteousness that we need to be saved. He is the Savior, the only one who can make the impossible possible. And the beauty of the gospel is that he has already done it. He hung on the cross and he spoke the true words. It is finished. As Paul said, through one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. What has he told John the Baptist is the purpose for him being baptized. Looking forward to the cross, he says, the purpose is to fulfill all righteousness. And what has he already told those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? That you will be filled. You will be satisfied. Jesus is the source of the righteousness that we need. His work on the cross, through his work on the cross, his obedience to the Father's will. He's the one through whom many are made righteous. So that on that ultimate day of judgment, when we stand before the holy judge, he does not look on us and see all our sins, but for those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are covered in his righteousness. And he looks on us and he says, not guilty, but righteous. And you enter into heaven all because of Jesus' righteousness. Not our own, but because of Jesus. This is why human righteousness simply isn't enough. We need a righteousness that is not our own. We need Jesus. So as we think about how to respond this morning, it's always good for us to reflect on how to respond to God's word. We can hear it all we want, but how do we respond? I believe we must endeavor to constantly, constantly remind ourselves of our inadequacy to save ourselves, our inability to save ourselves on our own merit. And we are quick to forget that, aren't we? So quick to forget. We think that we can do it on our own. I think we have a hard time accepting what Christ has freely given us. Yes, we can sing, oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Yes, we owe all our salvation to Jesus. He did pay it all. But be careful of this way of thinking. I heard a pastor say it this way, that, that too often we believe Jesus paid our entry fee into Christianity, but we pay the monthly membership dues on our kingdom account through works. Did you hear that? That is not true. Salvation is not our righteousness plus Jesus's righteousness. It is totally and completely Jesus's righteousness that saves us. So that is not the light bearers who are the ones who are glorified, but it is the light himself. Jesus says, don't shine your, your good works so that you get the glory, but that your father in heaven is the one who is glorified. And so we need to be careful that we do not begin to rely like the scribes and Pharisees did on our own merit, on our own works, as an attempt to appease God. But we must remember 
our need for Jesus and depend on him completely for our salvation and our sanctification. Our mentality, I think, should be like that of this Puritan whose words I'm gonna read. He penned these words, a prayer to God. This is from the the Valley of Vision. It's a, a small collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. And I want to read an excerpt from, from a prayer here because I believe it's, it's a fitting response that our hearts can have to today's message. So listen intently to these words and maybe pray them in your heart. Thou, God, has taught me the necessity of a mediator, a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all my heart as a king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to take away my sin and death. And this by faith in thy beloved son, who teaches me not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try and rule and conquer sin, but to cleave to the one who will do all for me. Thou hast made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance as a mourning for the sin which Christ by grace has removed. Continue, O God, to teach me that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as unspotted evidence of thy love to me. Help me to make use of his work of salvation as the ground of peace and of thy favor too and acceptance of me, the sinner, so that I may always live near the cross. It is Christ's work to save us and it is our work to cling to him by faith. Because our righteousness is never enough, let us always live near the cross. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus this morning. We're so quick to forget our need for him, but this morning we confess And we're reminded that our righteousness is nothing. That our good works are pretty worthless. So we thank you that you made a way for us to be saved. That what is impossible for man is not impossible with you. And that even though it is, there there was a possibility of making a way, you didn't just let that go on but that you from the very beginning, from the time that we messed up way back in the Garden of Eden, you made a plan to save. And we thank you that on this side of history, that Jesus came, that he went to the cross, and that on that cross, he bore not just some, not just some of our sin, not even most of our sin, but all of our sin. That he drank every last cup of your wrath wrath that we deserved and that he didn't remain in the grave but that he rose again to new life and so we too can have hope if we put our trust in him 
of rising to new life as well. I pray that you would continually remind us of our need for Jesus. Help us to trust you and to look to you at all times. We need your help for this. We pray all these things so thankful for how you care for us so well and that you listen even now. And we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen.